All right, everybody, welcome to Laura Entertainment. It is me, Mr. Michael Gibbons, and we are sitting down and talking to Leslie Vass, the man behind the Shattered Dream story. So I am going to actually hand this over to Mr. Michael Gibbons and Mr. Leslie Vass. Hello, everyone. Hi. Hi, everyone. I think I who y'all y'all really need to hear from is Leslie, just to hear a little bit about his story. Well, at the age of 17 in 1975, I was attending Southern High School in Baltimore, Maryland, playing basketball and hopefully looking forward to a life and professional of uh, area of sports, of, of basketball arena. All those thoughts came to an end February 15th, 1975, when I went to the local store that was in our neighborhood to make a purchase for my mom's. And as I went into the store, I spoke to the people in the back. I remember walking to the front of the store and speaking with the fellow named Doc that was the owner of the store. Um, he told me that the newspapers that I saw was outside in the machine. And as I went out to the front, I heard a voice behind me say, you with the level coat on, step back up against the wall. And it's like other people standing at the corner with me, but I, I really wasn't panning my mind because my purpose was just to get the paper and leave. Uh, as I turned around, I noticed that it was a police officer facing me with a handgun pointed at me, told me to walk over to the wall and put my uh, face against the wall. And I told her, I pointed to myself because I know I hadn't done anything. So I mean, I had never had any interaction with the police before. I had no understanding of what actually was transpiring like that. They also put the gun to my back of my head and told me to keep my face towards the wall. And then he said, I heard him say, is this a man? And all I heard was a voice say, it looked like him. And then the guy said, you under arrest for armed robbery. And I'm like, armed robbery? I just came out the store. You can walk in and ask Doc. I ain't robbed nobody. I, I'm not no, I ain't do this. So he said, well, shut up. Tell it to the, to the commissioner and you're under arrest. And I was like, well, for what? I said, you man in the store can tell you, he said, that's what you charge with robbing the store, the Westport Pharmacy. I said, man, I know that. I didn't rob no store. I just came in and bought paper for my mom's I usually did. They didn't want to hear that, man. They called for what they used to call the paddy wagon, which was the transportation van at the time back then in, in the 70s. And the guy came with the paddy wagon. They put me in the back of it and they took me to the Southern District Police Station, which was a couple blocks away from where I lived. Never being processed or arrested like this as a child, my mindset was totally about what moms told me, what I had to do, what my mom said to do. And all I can remember while I was riding this car is she, she gonna be mad. You know, because all I wanted to do was go to the store to get a paper, man. 
and here it is, these people arrest me and I don't know what's going on and I'm scared. I'm straight up, I'm scared. We get there, they put me in a cell, but before they put me in a cell, when they got me to the desk, they at the Sarge was at the desk and he said, uh, your date of birth and name. I said, Leslie Bass. He said, and how old are you? I said, 17. He turned around and yelled down the thing. He said, yo, we got, a, we got a big kid, a big juvenile up here, right? He said, what's your date of birth? I told him 9-7-1957. And he said, wow, you're a big ass kid like that, you know? And I'm just looking at him because I'm scared. They tell me they're going to put me in a cell. They, they take me back there and they put me in a cell that's opposite all the other people, but it's in a it's separate from everybody, right? In an area where I'm, uh, it's a lady on one side while well, selling in the middle, and then and the lady on the other side. Then on around the corner, you could hear the guys talking and stuff. So I stayed in there until like almost like twelve o'clock, one o'clock in the morning, and they came and took me out and carried me up there. And as they had me standing there and they had the handcuffs on me, I remember looking through the window and I could see my mother. And man, I was just like a sight of uh, relief came over me. And when they called me in there, uh, I went to go to her and she was like, no, you gotta stay over there. And the police told me stand here. And I remember that the, the commissioner that I learned said, you're going to be released on your own recon into the custody of your mother because you're a juvenile. But he said, you charged with armed robbery. And I said, yeah, I didn't rob nobody. He said, don't worry about it. He said, your mom's going to have to get an attorney or, or one will be provided to you. He said, but I'm telling you right now, don't you go back into that store or, or say nothing to none of them people. I said, sir, I knew the man that owned the store. I had just talked to them. And he said, well, you have to get that information to your attorney. I don't know what attorney is. You know, it's a word, okay? They released me into the custody of my moms. I remember when we was walking out, she said, what happened? And I said, mama, I said, I went in there to buy the paper. I saw Doc. I said, I saw Mr. Clarence, old man Clarence was a delivery driver that worked in the neighborhood. He drove, he used to come in the neighborhood and play cards at people's houses and all that stuff. And I said, they spoke to me, was asking me about my basketball game because I played for BNBL, which was a, a neighborhood basketball league that had just started. And I said, well, I said, they said that someone robbed the store. I said, well, they can tell them that I didn't ride because they know me, right? So she was like, you, I wait, I gotta, I gotta put out for a lawyer and all this. And you know, she, I thought she was upset with me. You know, and it's a lot that I didn't learn about actually until after my incarceration that related to things that have happened prior to me actually being convicted with my mom's as far as her upbringing and so forth. But as I, as we grow older, we learn, you know? So, I mean, everything is good now because I understand the struggles that she went through back then. And then trying to raise three boys by herself as, as a single independent woman, okay? 
a lot of things I didn't comprehend fully then that I do now. But nonetheless, I ended up uh, February 15th, I was arrested, released into the custody of my mother on the 16th that morning. July, I'll skip forward to July the 2nd, 1975, is when I actually uh, went to trial. The first time I appeared in courts from my arrest, there was no pretrial motions, no pretrial hearings or anything in my case that I became familiar with or aware of. I was never taken to court until July 2nd. Me and my mom's caught the bus and went down to, the, it used to be the Supreme Bench for Baltimore City at the time. And when we got there, I remember this attorney that she had, had paid, his name was, um, oh my God. I try not to even remember this man's name, really. But it's, you know, uh, mm -mm, my train of thought is really off right now. But um, this attorney actually didn't do anything. What he did was, do you have a check for me? That was my first meeting with him. Did, you, did she send you a check for me? And I was like, she gave me an envelope to give to you. He said, okay. He said, so I said, well, sir, I said, what happened? I said, these people arrested me and charged me with robbery, but I just came out the store. He said, look, don't worry about that. He said, do what your mother told you to do and listen to what I say. He said, when, you know, it comes time for them to ask you what kind of trial you have, send you my trial by judge. So I said, I thought my mother said trial by jury. He said, I'm telling you trial by judge. And I'm, I'm looking at this man and all the while I'm just watching his demeanor and his attitude towards me. It's like every time I only met with him twice before I went to trial. One time I met with him, I remember he just, he just had me come down and deliver a check right, that my mom said gave me. The next time I met with him, the only thing he said to me was, yeah, uh, did you ever, did you see the man that, that you were charged with robbing? And I said, what man? I said, they said I robbed the drugstore. I said, that's what they said. They charged me with robbing the drugstore that day. That's what my documentation said. It didn't say anything about a armed robbery that happened four and a half months before my arrest. So I'm now I'm really at a loss because that's November. And then they said, yeah, it happened November the 2nd, 1974. I said, well, I got arrested February 15th, 1975. I said, I don't know nothing about whatever y'all talking about. And to this day, I still have issues about how when I went to court that morning, the state's attorney, the man that was accused of that that accused me of being a person who committed this robbery were actually in the hallway outside of the courtroom before the courtroom doors were open with Mr. Chester and the man named Willie Adams who were witnesses to this robbery that happened in November 1974. Those very two men were listed as witnesses for the state and they went to the state's attorney. When they saw me and they asked me, Leslie, uh, what you doing down here, boy? 
I know you ain't in no trouble. And I'm looking at them like I'm a kid. And I'm like, you know, I don't want to say nothing because the judge told me if I say something to them, they're going to laugh me back up. And I, I ain't like being in that cell like that. And I started crying. And Mr. Clarence said, Leslie, what's wrong with you? I said, they told me if I talk to y'all, they're going to lock me back up. And they looked at me. Him and Mr. Will, I'll never forget. They looked at me like, what the hell are you talking about? And I said, they locked me up for robbing y'all. And he said, they locked you up? You're the person they, down, they got us down here for? And they went to the state's attorney. It's my hand of God. They told us, man. They said, y'all locked this kid up. We know him. He plays basketball in the community. A kid, he's been coming in the store for over 10 years. We know him. They looked at that man, Mr. Chester, and they said, you wrong. That kid wasn't the one that, that robbed you. That state's attorney told them, I'm dismissing y'all as witnesses. You, we won't need your testimony. Now, I don't know what these what 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 none of this mean because I don't have a legal understanding of anything. Nothing. Period regarding the criminal justice system. Went in there. He had told my mom that she need to go settle her bill at his office. And this is what I found on after fact now. So she left me in the hallway waiting for the doors to be open. When they opened the door and Mr. Chestnut saw me and, and they, they actually took me to the state's attorney and said to him, this kid is not the one that robbed him. Y'all making a mistake. He's not, we know him. And we're the ones that seen the people who committed the robbery and gave them the tag, gave the police the tag number of the vehicle that led to the arrest of the two other men the same night the robbery happened. I don't know what they're talking about. All I know, I had been arrested. I was charged. I was released. And they said I robbed these people that day, that store that day. It didn't say nothing about a robbery happened November the 2nd, 1974. Okay. We get into the trial. And I remember them saying, Les the case of State of Maryland versus Leslie Vast. So I was sitting there. Then Mr. Conrad, that was his name, Robert Paul Conrad. I don't even want to think about this, man. But uh, he came in and he went to the state's attorney and they were talking. Then he came over to me when I was sitting there on the bench and he said, I thought I told you not to talk to anybody. And I'm like looking at him like, like what's wrong with you? He said, you, them people, I said, that man, Mr. Chester and Mr. Willie Adams said something about a robbery that happened in November. I said, I was arrested in February. I don't know anything about no robbery in November. I said, I didn't commit no robbery. I said, I just went in the store to buy a newspaper. He said, you don't know that the person that, well, you don't know what the man looked like that you were charged with robbing? I said, man, I ain't never seen nobody. I said, them people, only thing I remember is hearing a voice behind me when they was arresting me. I don't, I didn't see nobody. I didn't turn my head because the police officer said he was going to shoot me 
if I move my head. I'm a 17 year old, I'm scared, you know? So, I mean, to be truthful with you and no disrespect to anybody, during that period of time in Baltimore, it was a racial issue regarding youth of Baltimore City. There was a lot of controversy and uh, racial issues going on in the state of, of Maryland, especially Baltimore City, when it concerns the youth there. A lot of individual youth were being rounded up and placed over at Baltimore City Jail and so forth. That's why during the course of my imprisonment, I met a lot of other dudes that were younger around my age because they were placed on, all of us were on a section together. And then when we were convicted, we were thrown into the Maryland State Penitentiary, which was the maximum security facility for the whole state of Maryland, okay? Um, whereas when I was found guilty, I couldn't believe it. And the judge said that he believed what the, victim has said, and I'm trying to tell these people, even in my transcript, I don't know what they're talking about in November. I was arrested February. That's all I can know. All I know is that I was arrested in February. November, I have no idea, no idea about anything. I've never met this man before. I never saw him. And when, then I learned that he was a part-time delivery driver for the Westport farm scene. He only worked one day on the weekend, usually on the weekend, I stayed at my grandfather's house because I worked. My mom's when I was, I worked for Muley's Bakery. So I, I mean, all my weekends were at my grandfather's house. Hmm. Mm -mm. Getting convicted and sentenced to 20 years for an armed robbery. And at the time, I was excelling in my abilities in basketball. I was making a name for myself in the community. My name was posted on the, what they call player of the week, a couple times in the News American newspaper in Baltimore. I tried to go back and get copies of that, but that, co that paper company went out of business and the Baltimore Sun and everybody told me they didn't know where all the records were at. So I've even went so far as to go all the way out California to try to find the records pertaining to what was going on, what happened after my imprisonment. So I finally got, get convicted. I'm placed in the Maryland State Penitentiary. I'm placed in A block, uh, cell 125. I can hear the children and the people outside playing throwing balls and they go to school and all. I could hear all those same things that I used to do as a kid. But I was behind a wall, a concrete brick wall and could only see, I couldn't see out into the street because I was on what they call the flats, which is the first level. Above me was death row. And the guys on death row were the ones that actually helped me start learning how to address the injustice that I went through. They used a term when I first started talking about my case, because that initially I wouldn't talk to nobody. I don't mean no harm. No, I've been in prison for something I don't know nothing about. I don't care nothing about none of you people here. I don't know y'all. You don't know me. Only thing I know is I didn't do this and I'm not for nothing, okay? 
that's my I, I don't mean no harm no disrespect but that's how i felt because of the kind of environment that i was in i, I had seen some things and maybe because of way i was i was raised and the people that were had been in my life during that time i remember before i went to prison my mom's had friends and we lived in a community where people ran numbers the illegal lotteries and stuff and my mother's friend morris mr morris was a number runner he ran the numbers you know the illegal lot illegal street lotteries i didn't know that i didn't know what they did i know they used to tell me go to the skin joint and you know run to the store get cigarettes and buy sodas and stuff like that and bring it back and they would give me a couple of dollars and change and stuff as a kid and as a kid out when school was out and things like that not during school time i'm in school so when i'm in prison mr morris and them had individuals that they knew that was in this kind of environment and then people used to come to me them people were older men that would come to me these men were men who had businesses that would have actually ended up committing crimes it was there fellow by the name of liddy jones Never fellow by the name of Lil Melvin. Um, I mean, I met a lot of people well, during the time I was in prison, and those people helped me understand what it actually happened. And the time that they called it was, you know, when you've been wrongfully in prison in that manner, is you've been blacklisted, you've been blackballed, and all that, you know. Uh, I found out that my attorney was an actual member of the attorney grievance commission for the state of Maryland. Man, he sat on the board that represented attorneys when they illegally did things. I didn't find that out until I had over five years in on my sentence when I filed a complaint against him. I ended up going to court and the people told me, well, He's an attorney grievance commissioner. He's a bar council member. He's in high standards and all that. Who am I? But young, ignorant, African-American kid from the inner city. And my, I felt like my life didn't mean anything to them. So my attitude when I was in prison was, I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that I would never allow this to ever happen to me ever again. And I'm going to fight. And that's what I'll continue to do, even now, since I'm home. I went to, I filed a complaint with, in the federal court, like they call it a 1983 civil suit, civil claims. And I got a hearing. At the time that I got it, I was at the time, I had seven, I had seven years in. And I had filed and I was like, yes, because I knew the state court wasn't going to give me any kind of relief because they knew that I was not the person. See, I, I learned while I was in, in prison that the guy I was mistaken for, his name was, his real name was Bucky Nutt. They call him Bucky Nutt, right? His real name was Charles Parker, right? This guy was an informant for the very same detectives that was in charge of investigating that robbery. I didn't learn until after I was in prison that the people who actually committed the robbery were home on a weekend visit from a drug program 
when they committed that robbery. I believe between y'all that Bucky Nutt was in the car when they stopped him because it was three people in that vehicle when they stopped it. But for some reason, the only two that were arrested were the two men that were supposed to have been, you know, involved in it that admitted committing the robbery. As I learned later from this case and going, I went to what they called the archives to get a copy of Bucky Nutt's history regarding this armed robbery and the other two men that was that was convicted. They were convicted and admitted committing the robbery before I was ever arrested. These men found received five years. One received five years probation. The other man received five years tacked onto the sentence that he was actually serving. Okay. Bucky Nutt disappeared. But he was a well-known associate of the guy Charles Parker, who was who was supposed to have been my co-defendants on these crimes. During the time of me being in prison, I was never, they never housed me in any facility that them men were in because I would always check. I worked as a clerk. I put myself in a position where I could find out what I need to find out. Meaning I worked as a clerk in a medical department. I worked as a clerk for state use industries, metal working department, where I received my certification as a metal metal working uh, 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 candidate. I did body and fender. I did these things because I wanted to make sure that if, if by the grace of God, if I got released, I would never have to, to worry about this not being a thing, a part of my history. But I didn't know about all the other stuff that came after the conviction. So we talk about that later. Yeah. <laughs> That's what, is that all right? Yeah, we got we got to save them something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but but I mean, I want I want to tell y'all I'm I'm so honored and so appreciative to everybody that's involved in it. I'm I mean, y'all really you don't know what I feel every day I wake up, I you know, and I see different things about the story. I've been doing some other things here in Baltimore like different events and stuff and trying to keep myself focus and positive because it hurts to just to look at after going through all that I went through with these people from the state of mind to actually get home to prove that you have that you've been robbed and convicted to still have to suffer and be treated less than human because of a criminal record that should not have never been and the state admitted that it was a mistake. I could understand if they said there was a question but you tell me, you give me documentation and proof that you know that this was a true error, but you still hold that same record against me for the remainder of my days. I came home when I was 28. I still had a mindset of a 17-year-old. I didn't understand anything about life. I was, I'm not going to, I ain't trying to play the, the victim, baby fire stuff because man, it's not about none of that. I did not know. People, life changed in 10 years. I, you know, I came home to being told, oh, you need to do this. And if you don't do this, you can't stay with me. Those kind of things, you understand? And I'm like, well, wait a minute, hold. I'm just getting out here and I, I don't know what to do. But 
because of your minds, because of the change in people's attitudes, it's all about a dollar, money, which you can give. And I, and, and that goes for family all too, that I went through. When I wrote the book that I wrote that I actually posted on Scribe, I did that as a therapy for myself because I needed it at the time. And everything that I wrote in there was the God's truth. I didn't cut no corners because I feel like I was doing myself an injustice. The state wasn't going to help me get any kind of closure mentally with what was going on. And at the age that I was, I was then having relationships with young women that were I was in a relationship with and did not understand what a relationship consisted of. I mean, let's be realistic. A different parts of my life, this thing has touched and it continues to touch, even at this age that I'm at now at 65. But I'm, I'm thankful, I'm humble, and I'm appreciative for everybody that's involved in this story. Thank y'all. You're welcome. All right, with that, you guys, I am going to wrap up the recording session of this and then everybody can stay on and I'll open it up where you guys can actually ask questions while we got him on here. Um, I'm gonna end this. I wanna say thank you, Leslie, for being on here and thank you, Mr. Michael Gibbons, for being on here, but that's it for now.
that night when I first gave my heart to yours I was scared and feeling insecure You told me, my darling, even on your darkest days You'd always reassure 